Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen, and with me again this week, Ted Haycraft. Yay! Yeah, you're so happy you're here. On today's episode... Especially this one, yeah. This one was a good one. Yeah. On today's episode, we have... I've been bragging about this to anyone who's interested. This is the podcast's first Pulitzer Prize winner. He didn't win a Pulitzer Prize for his film work. He's He did something more lofty for to win his Pulitzer Prize in his reporting, but author Glenn Frankel author of the new book shooting midnight cowboy like it, i this was my introduction to his work reading this and like i started reading some of his other books it's we will go into this into the episode but um but first what did what did we watch this week ted oh i, I was over the map uh i saw i finally caught up um to two films uh i, I one i might have seen i'm not sure but uh smile and heartbreak kid I haven't really wanted to see Smile for a long time. I would just watch Heartbreak Kid for the first time like two weeks ago. Yeah, Maybe Heartbreak, three weeks ago. Of course, you know, the, the sad thing is there's not a really good uh, uh, edition of Heartbreak Kid out there now. How did you watch it? I, I bought some, I, I bought some like bad rip. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's from a, you know, technically a bootleg, I guess you want to, whatever you want to call it. I, I forget someone good but shot it, the movie too. So you'd want a good rip. But it's a decent, rip. mine's a decent copy because I think they probably took it off the Anchor Bay video, uh, a DVD or whatever. The last okay. time I, I think Inker Bay had it last, but there's never been a Blu-ray of it as far as I know. And then Smile just came out on Blu-ray. And it's, you know, it's wonderful. Uh, and they got a little nice feature, a Dernsey, Bruce Dern talking on it. And he's giving, he, he has some pretty good Dernsey memories. being that uh, when the directors let him do a limited improvisation. Yeah, he brings, yeah, he tells you the origin of that name. They let him do a Dernsey. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, you get our early Melanie Griffith or Colin Camp, uh, Anil Tools, I think, debut. Uh, Jeffrey Lewis is in it, and it's Michael Ritchie at, at the top of his game, and it's it's a really interesting. It's uh, a beauty pageant. Yes, yeah, it, it takes place at a beauty pageant and like up in California, so one of the smaller towns, and uh, you think it's going to be like a mean spirited attack on Middle America and the values and stuff, but it's that's actually, not Michael Ritchie's. Man. No, oh. it, it's actually kind of sweet, and 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 you understand it, and you and you empathize, and you get you you uh, and Bruce Dern's character, he's a salesman, is really good. Oh, and um. From uh, Get Smart, Barbara Feldon, really good. You know, one of these actresses that, you know, just never got the traction that maybe she deserved. She, you know, deserved a bigger profile. She's really good at it, and uh, so yeah, it's it's a wonderful little film. Heartbreak Kid. We talked, uh, you know, we it, talked offline. Yeah, a lot we did about offline it. about that, but uh, we did maybe we need to tackle that down the road sometime because uh, maybe I mean May, I we'll do do a, a podcast on Lane May or something. Well, we definitely Lane May is definitely in the card for a podcast. Uh, but uh, Heartbreak Kid, I, I was kind of inspired to watch it from our graduate talk. Like you know, there's some some circles that like prefer that to the graduate. <laughs> wow, very yeah. sm- very small circles. To yeah, be well, my expectations were really high for it, and I've kind of been on a Lane May kick lately, and uh, so I had an interesting reaction to it. Uh, but I did as it went along. I, I warmed up more and more to. It. By the end of the film, I was with it. But at first, I was like, ah, I was like, I was expecting a, like a laugh to a minute, you know. And it's not exactly a laugh fest uh, in some ways. No, it's not. Um, so, which, <laughs> I mean, which is not necessarily a bad thing. No, no, no. Think. And Eddie Albert uh, from Green Acres, he's the he is very good. Yeah, he's wow. very good. Yeah. And there's some interesting actors show up in that too. So, and then I saw, uh, I watched, uh, I got out of the theater, saw Together, Together. And that's a really, really interesting film. Uh, I'm, I'm be curious to talk to people who see it, what they think of the ending. Uh, it's one of those endings where you go, uh, "It's over." Okay, what? Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it was nice. It was uh, the director. I, I, do you know the director's name of Together Together? Uh, I can look it up. Uh, but she uh, does an intro. Uh, they had an intro uh, 
that she shot for the film and say, hey, thanks for being in the theater. It's so nice that you're actually in a theater watching this film. And then they did uh, uh, Jim Carter, I think his name is. He's a course. Uh, I see. What was it? Show. It was a Sundance movie. Yeah, so. and they did a Q and A at the end with the two leads and the director at at the end, and uh, they were all excited that this film's actually playing in the theater because I think it's. A, I don't think it's streaming yet. I think they actually went straight to the first the theater, but. Um, uh, oh, you're killing me, Google. Uh, <laughs> Nicole Beckwith. Yeah, and it, yeah, she seemed to be uh, really interesting, and uh, the Q and A was nice and. So yeah, I recommend it uh, together together. If you uh, sweet character piece that you know that they say, well, they don't make those those kind of films that are not being made for the theater. Well, it, well, this year's different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I caught up to Frankenstein: The True Story, a TV movie. But that's something that's down the road too, maybe or something. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I had a bunch of randos this week. Uh. For a little bit for the podcast, I mentioned this on the episode. I watched uh, uh, Day of the Locust, which I've been putting off. Yeah, I need to, I need to watch that. In fact, there's a really nice. Have uh, you seen it? No. I don't think I know. I don't think, and, and there's a I just gonna they, uh, there's an Australian imprint uh, called Imprint that put out a really nice Blu-ray of it just recently. I the mean, version I watched was pretty uh, uh, crisp, a uh, crisp transfer. Um, I wish I, I I get into it a little on the podcast, my opinion on the movie. So I'll leave that as a and, and I'll recommend you go check out Glenn's uh, Cine Savants review. He just reviewed the Blu-ray, so you might find that interesting um i had um I, the one i want to ask you about is it was on tcm they've been put it was pushed I, I guess i just never seen it i've always been wanting to fill in all my gaps with alan parker so i watched fame oh yeah wow okay i saw that in the theater you know it was like the, that was one of those what ones. is the reputation of that movie we it was it had a good reputation. Uh, it, well, it has the TV show, right? And right. It was well. It did so, you know. It did so. It had a, it got such a good reaction that they they actually did a TV show. I that, thought it was a really interesting movie. Like I think oh, yeah. I, I'd heard people talk it down just because of the music numbers seemed to come out of nowhere. And but that's a good thing, I, I would think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is uh, that whole you know let's let's put a show on type thing. Uh, it had it had kind of a weird uh, vibe that people were judging it superficially and not really look, looking at it uh, in depth and, and see what's going on. Because it's pretty grimy and dirty. I mean, it's... It is. And it also has a really neatness where it does not tie up almost anybody's storyline yeah. at all. Especially when you get to the end. Like, it, like, the last 20 minutes opens up a bunch of stuff and it's just, graduation! And the movie ends. <laughs> yeah, Alan Parker. I mean, gosh, bless him. Alan Parker is that... He's the Ridley Scott school, the... Uh, um, I don't know who else would I put in uh, Adrian Lyne. Yeah, yeah. And, just yeah. those commercial shooters who, like, are just uh, UK, gorgeous yeah. shooters from the UK in the late 70s who like the like are really like you not to go into the whole who created the music video aesthetic but they're pretty influential on the 80s version of it at the very least right yeah um, but the most interesting thing I watched this week I just started it I, I, I I'm working right now so a lot of the movies I watched this week were just background movies so I didn't have much extra time but I started Barry Jenkins Underground Railroad show on Amazon oh yeah um there's a part of me that's just you know the fatigue of more TV shows and long content saying, oh, I have another 10-hour trek in front of me. There's also part of me was very holy shit about it. Like, it was just like, I mean, after If Beale Street Can Talk, I really had that feeling. I think other critics pointed this out. Barry Jenkins is our new Wong, is our American Wong Kar Wai. Mm, and this show is, the I think Beale Street got some money behind it because it's a you know, follow-up to an Oscar winner. But um, this really feels like Barry Jenkins has some money behind it, and it's so goddamn painterly. Like, but but expressive and 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 just kind of sensual with it, and the colors are just gorgeous. And 
There is a feeling I had though. Wong Kar Wai works in like 90 minute segments. So I'm still a little bit on, I've only watched one at the pilot. And if you've read the book, Colson Whitehead, uh, it's a, based on his Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Um, Colson Whitehead like is a novelist I've kind of gone up and down on. I still haven't read Underground Railroad, but he has a book I love called uh, John Henry Days. Um, the pilot kind of like does the thing where it's like the end of the pilot gives you the central premise of the show and for a hook and that's fine. And, but it was the most interesting thing I watched this week. But um, on this episode, we're talking Midnight Cowboy, um, which you we, we mainly wanted to talk about uh, shooting Midnight Cowboy, the Glenn Frankel's book. So we talk, we, we definitely go into the why. I, I've never been a huge fan of this movie before really not 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 i didn't dislike this movie i just was and we talk about this a little later where it's reputation amongst certain especially oscar winners from say like 69 to 73 or just movies from that era this one has kind of declined and, and glenn kind of has talked about he wanted to push uh its reputation a little oh uh, yeah and i uh one thing i, I forget we forget, i forgot to mention in it it just it's kind of a trivia thing uh we, we were doing our, our uh, podcast on uh uh Getting straight, mm-hmm. I, I went off on a tangent about the the Brave and Bold comic book and uh, the Green that, Arrow one. Right? Well, the on the bus, and there's a scene where John Voight, Joe Buck, is on the bus. He looks over, the, and the kid's reading a, a Wonder Woman comic. The Miss issue. Uh, yeah, it's the issue where Wonder Woman's powers are taken away, uh, and uh, they, you know they thought they were doing a cool thing, kind of make her turn into a Dinah Rig type character for the Avengers. And then, of course, Gloria Steinem eventually uh, caused a big stink, saying, "Well, no, she needs to have her powers back." Yeah. So. Uh, I don't know. I had nothing says, to do with any of the subtext of the movie or whatever, but nothing I, says feminism like taking away a woman's power. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm kind of I've been telling Sham I'm inspired to like make a, a list of comic book appearances uh, in movies. <laughs> the one thing I didn't really go into the episode that really took me about Midnight Cowboy was especially following our um, graduate episode, the one where we did on Mike Nichols commentaries. Is it really feels like this is the episode. We talked a lot about why Dustin Hoffman was a new leading man, but he goes into this and he's a side, uh, he's a character actor in this. And the range between these two movies is this follow up to The Graduate is just almost equally, if not for me, more impressive than him in The Graduate itself. Like trying to follow up The Graduate with something with a lot more character acting gravitas to it. And I don't know. The book is kind of just, that's an obvious, makes the point. It seems like it's an obvious move, but uh, the funny things I observed about this was uh, Dustin Hoffman right after the graduate is still in a pool in Florida when the Florida sequence is. And for those few people who are going to listen to this and have not seen Midnight Cowboy, it's the second Dustin Hoffman movie in a row that ends with him <laughs> on the back seat of a bus. Yeah. And what's interesting, I'm watching some of the features on the disc uh, for the movie and stuff, uh, and the and he, the book too. He 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 became a big overnight sensation with the graduate. He was huge, and there were there were people on the streets trying to get his autograph or talk, you know, going and they wanted to see nice, this nice little Jewish boy, you know, and and cuddle him and and get his autograph. And you know, and so he takes this character in Midnight Cowboy and just you know takes that the the the, the cred he developed with the graduate and. and Puts it, throws it all into this character, yeah. which is pretty amazing. Yeah, there's a one story I didn't we didn't talk about on the episode that I loved in the book is uh, after the shooting of this, uh, Dustin Hoffman was living in the apartment next to a weather underground explosion, and there's this great picture of him just waiting outside <laughs> his apartment. 
Yeah, you don't I, know. Yeah, yeah. This this book, uh, we we go into the superlatives about this book pretty pretty thickly yeah. uh, in the episode, but we both really love uh, this book and Glenn's style. We're in. I feel stupid for just being introduced to him. So I'm glad we had this talk. He was such a great, great, great conversationalist and so nice. Yes. Yeah. And if you want to read a good book about a good, uh, a great movie, the making of this is the book. This is one book you should read. Oh, cool. Well, and here's Glenn Frankel talking up his book, Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. <laughs> well, you know, I I, I zipped uh, through the book. Really, really great book, uh, the Midnight Cowboy one. And uh, it's one of those books where I started and I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to get stuck. I don't want to, I, I got to do another chapter. I got to do the chapter. And, right, right, and, right. And, and I couldn't put it down. And I got through it really fast. That's that's a good sign for me because I have so many books that I step and start and stuff. And I got, you know, I got a book on, you know, I'm sitting, I've got a stack of like four or five books that I've started. I haven't finished. Midnight Cowboys, no problem at all. I, I well, got through it. I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. I appreciate that. The uh, and I'm also a big. Uh, I'm a big Dylan freak. So you, oh. uh, it, was, it was interesting. It was a lot of Dylan in there. I actually had a. Uh, your I I uh, contacted my. There's a magazine called ISIS. Unfortunately, they had that before the terrorist group. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the editor won't change the title of the magazine because he's had that before. And. Uh, and uh, I can't, I uh, let them know about your book um, and, and how much you uh, you know you uh, you reference Dylan in it. They may have a little uh, a little plug there in your in the magazine. I'll have to let you know if they do or not. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm a, I'm a big Dylan fan too, and it was lovely to find Fred Neal in the Chronicles there. I remembered that Fred was in there, but going back, Dylan writes it very well. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Good old Bob. Uh, uh, just when you think uh, he, can, he, he will do a tackle some other thing and it's just as good as anything else. Well, this was really good. And I, so I deferred to him and just quoted him. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and then you, and you actually quoted him in the chapter stop about the weatherman and. Right. Uh, right. And, right. Uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, the whole, uh, the whole, I'm always was concerned. I always was curious about uh, the history of what did he actually, did he, was he contacted or did he bring music to them? Or you know what the there's you know there's that little back and forth about it was he going to put some music in there or not oh I think no I was going to say they met him uh, as best they can remember they met him out in Malibu when they were renting a beach house and he was out there right and they were talking to him about what they were doing and um, it's it, memories are very unclear and of course I couldn't get anybody from Dylan's camp to uh, you know help me out here but eventually Lay Lady Lay shows up. Um, uh, either it arrives in a tape or, but, but also I know because Jerry Hellman, the producer of the movie described him how Dylan came to his apartment and played it, played it. That Jerry, Jerry couldn't even remember what song it was. <laughs> it played, of course, but it was Lay Lady Lay, but it's way too late. And in any event, Schlesinger's already run into uh, everybody's talking and he, you know, and they're different rhythms. Schlesinger's already started cutting the film to everybody's talking. He's totally enamored with everybody's talking. So, you know, Dylan lost out to Fred Neal and, um, and Nielsen. What do you yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, Bob can be gracious sometimes and I'm sure he's probably happy that Fred got a little uh, toss there. Uh, it, it's interesting too, that, um, uh, that if you think about National Skyline album, 
Lay Lady Lay doesn't really kind of match the other very simplistic uh, country yeah. songs. It's you got a different the, feel, yeah. vibe to it. So that kind of, it also kind of plays into that. And then one other thing, I'll, I'll start my Dylan fascination. Uh, one other thing I thought was, <laughs> the one thing I thought you really, I think was new to me, I think you, you uh, and it might be new to a lot of the Dylan fans out there, is that uh, Shushinger using uh, Saturday, Saturday Lady as a temp track. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and you know, I love that John Barry. I was I was a big John Barry fan as a kid. I always have been. I'm, I'm 62 years old, so I was right there when Barry, you know, was pumping out all those great soundtracks. Sure. And my early cl- record collection is basically Beatles and soundtracks before I expanded. <laughs> so uh, when you wrote about that, and then you said that they used kind of Barry. I guess John maybe listened to that and kind of came up with that loping. Kind right. of quality to it. I'm like, oh my gosh, that that was a big revelation to me. I, I had no idea either. It never occurred to me. But when you when you hear them, of course, there it is. Yeah, it is. it's very similar. Even some of the chord changes seem similar. And that was a for me in the book. Like I'm someone that only knows John Barry for a score, so I didn't. I was unfamiliar with how much he was like a music supervisor at that point on top of orchestrations. He could do everything. I mean, uh, he's one of those guys, you know, so many of those people were sort of knocked to the side by the Beatles and didn't find a way to recover. But John Barry was just so multi-talented and, uh, you know, that he just, he just carried on and stepped, stepped through it and, you know, became with all these movie soundtracks and doing every other kind of thing. John Barry is a giant, um, it's too bit. It, I think we're losing touch with him now. People are forgetting about him, but he was, he was a major figure in our musical, you know, the, in the soundtrack of the sixties and early seventies. Oh yeah. Major. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 as, as much as we have so many, um, I, I, I kind of keep up with soundtracks a little bit, but they just kind of, there's nothing really sticks out, but man, when you had a John Barry or a Morricone, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they just, right. they, it was so, it, they they made the film that better, but they were very the very signature. They were a very uh, unique sound that you didn't mind having that unique sound because it was so great. Yeah, a lot of my generation. I think Ted's going to cringe at this. I don't know how you'll react. Uh, most, uh, Dances <laughs> with Wolves. Dances with Wolves is our uh, entry point for John Barry. So. Oh yeah, yeah. I love Dances with Wolves. I'm you know I'm a sentimentalist. I I I actually am a Kevin Costner fan. Mm-hmm. Well, he, I think he said. I thought. He, I think he's put. Uh, why I would cringe is because I think there was a shift in Barry's career where he 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 kind of slowed down. And became very melodic. I think he had that surgery, mm-hmm. the cancer surgery, or whatever he had. Uh-huh. And, and there seemed to be a shift. I love it. I mean, it's great that that later day period. But there's a little bit of the snap is gone. But that could be age too. And yeah, and, and, sure. and the movies he's working on. I mean, he's always trying to you know obviously work with the movie he's got. He's not right. trying to impose his own sensibility so much as enhance it. So, you know, but these are matters of emotion and taste. I mean, you know, yeah. you don't have to love that one. Um, <laughs> no, I love it. I, I, I like it, but just, I just... He just was doing all these sweeping epics at that point, and there wasn't a lot of variety from what you got. The yeah, I was just trying to convince... Well, you know, and I, I don't think Shane... I was telling Shane about how he had a jazz combo... Right, and, right. And, and and really, you know, I was unaware of this. And you know, when you start with, the, if you start listening to the early soundtracks, you go, that that jazz snap is still there, and uh, you know, he's kind of playing with it, you know, Goldfinger and stuff like that. And, right. No, he's and he's mixing genres, and you know, he's got his feet in both worlds. Um, you know, John Burlingame at USC. I don't know if you've run into John over oh, the years. I, I haven't. I, I am. I'm very aware of John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's okay. a huge John Barry fan. He's yeah. the one who really turned. 
turned me on to a few things. So, I mean, I was so lucky with this book because so many talented people were involved in the making of this movie. And the music's incredible. And the music's a key part of it. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm always... I love being able to include all those people in my book. <laughs> I've always, it always, uh, I have a little struggle in my head, which represents Midnight Cowboy musical to me because I, the John Barry score theme is just as important to me as everybody's talking. It's like either one evokes the movie. Uh, I guess maybe it's just it evokes the movie in different flavors. Maybe I should say because, but they're they're so they're so strong and they 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 don't overpower each other. They they're very right uh, right. Uh, that's a nice balance, you know. They blend together well. Yeah. And yes, the- exactly, which is not easy to do, uh, you know, because, the, I mean, especially everybody's talking to such an enigmatic, curious song, you know, it is its own thing. Um, and it seems so autonomous, and yet it mixes perfectly with the Midnight Cowboy you know, theme that he, that Barry wrote. That's Barry's genius, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it seems like the mark of good, uh, good su- music supervisor. Uh, Glenn, before we jump in, I wanted to. Um, when I was going through your biography, I saw that you would um, were at the journalism school at UT in Austin from 2010 to 2014. Right. I lived in Austin from about 2005 <laughs> until about two years ago. In yeah, fact, my my fun. my last place was only like two blocks north of campus. Ah, uh, we were north of campus too. We were on Forty First Street. I was on Thirty First Street. <laughs> oh, it's you guys making all that noise down there? <laughs> <laughs> oh well, by the time I left, I was the person calling four one one at eleven thirty on the dot. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, we did that occasionally. <laughs> um, I had a um, kind of opposite reaction to with Ted, where I, I had trouble today, where when I first read the book. For the podcast, I've been trying to, you know, do good note session, read the book, get, do a deep dive into it. And today I had to like do this like fast reskim of the book and take a bunch of notes because I read the book so fast. Actually, it is similar to Ted's. I didn't take any notes. I got like a like a few pages of notes where I was just into the book. Um, I'm sorry to say this is the first book of yours I've read, but I had started the High Noon book and. Uh. Mm-hmm. I am really, really looking forward to this. It seems like lately there's been this kind of, it's, it's my, one of my favorite types of book, books like by Sam Wasson or Ted and right. I have a mutual love of Mark Harris. Uh, these Yeah, I love Mark Harris. Deep uh, dives into film history and history itself. But, um, but very focused on one film primarily. It's, almost, it's a new genre almost. We just, the Glenn Kinney's uh, of uh, Goodfellas. Goodfellas, right. Goodfellas book, which, yeah. which I haven't read incidentally. It's on my mm-hmm. list. Um, yeah, I'm probably the one who knows the least about movies of all those people. <laughs> and the one who's most interested in using the movie to illuminate the era it reflects or it was made in. I mean, that's my whole shtick. That's my subgenre of the genre. Um, because I'm, you know, history is something I do know something about and mm-hmm. want to write about. Movie making, I rely on, you know, sources and friends like Burlingame and you guys, whoever I can get my hands on to help me through that. But I really believe that a good movie tells you so much. It's such a great way of looking at, at an era in the past. And that's how it's worked for me. That's, so that's my little corner of this. But I love being, you know, Mark Harris is my idol, too. He's 15 years older than me, but he's my mentor. I mean, well, the, the great thing in your book is you're such a good reporter that you get your filmmaking stuff down. Like you're not there's there's not a lot. There's there's a lot of times when you read normal, typical film journalism where it's very clear, like no one's ever 
been on the other side of actually making a movie? Well, that's Yeah, you maybe just think of Quentin Tarantino. Uh, he's been, uh, I think he took him off the website, but uh, he was doing some essays on movies. Or on a, and he starts out on this one movie, and then all of a sudden he's in three or four paragraphs. He's way off the mark. He's going mm-hmm. off on this tangent, which is fine. I loved it, but that's Quentin for you. Whereas right. yours, <clears throat> you know, you really stay on the mark and, and get you. Um, and, and, it's and, so well compartmentalized. Yeah. Like, I, Yeah, I liked how you, yeah, that was going to say. And I loved how it's almost like I was reading uh, with your book, uh, almost like many biographies. Yeah. Right? Uh, and uh, and an, uh, you really paint a great picture of Schlesinger, <laughs> of Barry, of Harry, uh of all these guys, here uh, he is the main one. He, I feel like you've like. Well, I, I thought the writer too, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I and the um, acknowledgments. I thought is there's only one book that's been written about him before this. That's right. That's right. And that's a book that's a very close study of his work. It's not a biography, or it doesn't tell you tells you things about him, but you know, it's really focused on the work. Uh, I, you know, Hurley, I, I just thought it was essential to take the guy who, where this all started. I'm a very literal person. I got to start <laughs> at the beginning. And Jim, James, Leo Hurley is the beginning. I thought that Jim would take me all around New York and leave lots of diary notes and take me down the 42nd Street. And most of all, I thought he'd tell me where the hell Joe Buck and Ratso come from. Uh-huh. Real people, are they adapted from folks he met? What was he doing in Times Square? because it's clear he spent a lot of time in Times Square. Jim was very close-lipped about all that in in the writings. I I talk about him in the present tense. He's been dead since 1993. I never met him. But he he was fascinating enough, and he he really helps illuminate that particular era where he comes to New York in the 50s and all the interesting people he runs into. And... uh, but Jim himself was very up and down. He suffered from depression. There are times when I can't get anything out of him, you know? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I was going to say one of the most touching moments in the book is uh, um, the suicide note. Uh, that, yeah. was the, that was yeah. the moment I teared up. That was, a, that, was a, that was a point where I was like, this is his biography. Yeah, well, I, you know, I feel very lucky. To, in the end, Jim was so important, and, and I, I'm, I was lucky to talk to some people who knew him well, including his former partner, Dick, who died just a few months ago, so I was mm. so lucky to spend time with Dick. And then Anais Nin, at all of all people. Oh, no, that surprised me. That was a real surprise. Well, that was, you know, I was so happy <laughs> when she walks on the stage because she's a great character, and she made him write things down, and she writes things about him. So without her, uh, it would have been much harder to bring this guy to life. Yeah, and her, her uh, uh, pushing of him to publish his journals. Do you think that he, in terms of, I, 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 this, you know, as an artist, this doesn't really matter. And his, uh, he was up and down the depression, and 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 yeah. three of his uh, uh, movie adaptations made out of all th- three of his books. Do you feel like he, at the end of the day, he's considered a successful writer, or he, where does he fit in the pantheon? Of, because uh, Midnight Cowboy was unpublished for so long, too, right? Well, no, it, I mean, they got it published, but nobody paid any attention to it, um, except a few members of the gay community really admired it. Uh, I think he's not in the pantheon at all. I mean, I think yeah. he's a forgotten figure. There's nothing. And that's partly his own fault, because, you know, he only wrote for a while, and he was very ambivalent about it. And then his illness really, uh, and he just wore himself out. Um, and so he stopped writing. I think if he'd written another couple of novels, if he 
you know, you can see it in Vance from All Fall Down, his first novel, which is pretty good, actually, to Midnight Cowboy. Uh, you know, um, Season of the Witch has problems, but it, it's, a, it's a lively book, and he could have done more. He didn't do enough to really become a figure, and it's too bad because he's a talented guy, but it's just warm to a frazzle. Glenn, let's let's rewind back for a little bit for your story. So you're from the Bronx? Well, I was born in the Bronx, but my parents made a fast escape. Um, <laughs> and I grew up in Rochester, New York, about 300 miles, you know, northwest, which could be like growing up in Indiana. Or <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope not. Um, <laughs> did uh, what w- you mentioned earlier that maybe you didn't know as much movies as those other writers we mentioned but clearly movies stuck a chord in you i i know in the searchers book you said the searchers was one of your favorite movies as a, growing up what kind of movies were you watching as a kid well i mean all the westerns of course everything that that came and went but other you know all the corny stuff like the time machine with rod taylor and you know and oh i love the guns of navarone i loved um, magnificent seven my dad love these movies and he would take me to them and that helps. So I, I'm seeing them early on. Uh, but movies were such a, a bigger part of popular culture in the fifties and sixties when I was growing up. I mean, my family went to movies all the time. We saw Ben-Hur together, you know, uh, I think they didn't take me to Spartacus. There was cause they were a little nervous about watching the Kirk Douglas be crucified. <laughs> Uh, but otherwise, we went to so many movies. It just was part of, you know, that's what we did as a family. And um, and then I went off to Columbia, you know, for undergraduate school. And that's, you know, Manhattan was just one big film studies island for me because they had the Thalia and the Symphony and the New Yorker and, you know, the downtown theaters and 42nd Street. <laughs> you, you could get a really good film education uh, for, you know, about 75 cents a pop. So you were at Columbia when they when this movie came out or when it started filming or both? Both. both. I got to Columbia in the fall of 67. The film, the the movie starts filming in um, spring of 68. Now, I knew nothing about the fact they were filming this movie. I mean, I wasn't hanging out in those quarters. I was going to a lot of movies, probably more movies than going to class. But but, you know, that had nothing to do with knowing anything about the movie industry and, and, and any of that. Uh, I saw it when it came out in 69. I saw it again in 1970 in Israel of all places when I was there in the summer. And So how I, old were you when you first saw it, uh, you think? Uh, well, let's see. If it's 69, uh, I was 19. Perfect age to, to see that film at. And New York. And I was, you know, I was spending, you know, I wasn't Joe Buck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> God forbid. But... <laughs> I was spending a lot of time walking the streets with just a couple of bucks in my pocket because I had no money. And um, but you could walk New York and New York was such a fascinating and terrifying place for a 19 year old or an 18 year old. You know, I went to the village. Oh, I spent so much time in the village and in what's now Soho, which was then just an old Italian neighborhood. You know, the architecture was so amazing. The people you'd run into going to see the Fugs at the Cafe, you know, I didn't, Fillmore East opened while I was there and you could go to the Fillmore East for $3 and see three acts. I mean, you know, so 
I just skimmed along the bottom, but I was getting a sort of great, if you will, uh, informal education in popular culture. Well, one of the things I love about the book is it seems like a lot of your love of the movie comes from how well it represents New York at that time and how much it, it, it defined New York for a lot of people for a lot of time. And it, that's clearly a personal spot for you, too. Yeah, this is very much a personal book, even though I'm not in it per se, uh, except for just a, a few acknowledgments at the very end. Uh, I'm on every page of that book because I have my own sense of what New York was like in that era. And, you know, uh, I have a close friend who's a New Yorker, you know, who, who has said, well, yeah, but this, is, this movie really isn't a New Yorker's movie, you know, um, and, and a number of people criticized it for being a very superficial portrait of New York. And for them, that's what it is. But so many people come to New York. So many people arrive in New York like I did from someplace else or like Jim Hurley he did on, you know, The Greyhound or John Schlesinger comes in or Dustin Hoffman. You know, we're New Yorkers too, or we were New Yorkers and we, and, and it's the place where people go to try to, you know, make something of themselves or to find their future for better and worse. And so that's the point of view of the movie. And that's the point of view I brought to New York at the time. I I didn't know if I was going to last in New York, if I was going to survive in New York, but I sure was, you know, I was, I was fascinated by it. I love the quote you use, you use at the beginning of the book and you use it at the beginning of a different chapter. It's the E.B. White quote about to live in New York, you have to be lucky. Yeah, yeah, that that fit perfectly for me. I mean, <laughs> and I was lucky in so many ways. I mean, I met the woman who's now been my wife for, you know, 40 odd years in New York. I made so many good friends and I had so many experiences. I did work in the film department at the Museum of Modern Art for about eight months at the end of college. I was a clerk typist. Oh, wow a two finger one, but I was re helping rent the reels of film that they would send out to high schools and colleges of Birth of a Nation or, you know, of old movies. This, this is long gone, nobody does this anymore, but I was typing those up. But at the same time, the, you know, the little film place was right across the, the hallway and people would come in. And I remember seeing movies like Death in Venice, John Lennon and Yoko Ono showed up one day and showed The Fly, this movie she'd been doing. <laughs> you know, uh, Warren Beatty and Julie Christie and, and, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It was a great summer for seeing, uh, you know, new Hollywood movies and other things. So I, I'm, I'm not a total naive about film. I just don't know how to make one. <laughs> no, good. That, well, that much is uh, clear. Um, <laughs> were, so were you a journalism major at Columbia then? There was no such thing. Um, there is a journalism school at Columbia, but it's only a graduate school. And in fact, I think it's charter rules out. There were no undergraduate courses in journalism. I didn't work at the Spectator, which was the daily newspaper, a pretty good newspaper. I wanted to be a novelist. Okay. Uh, so I was taking English courses, but I ended up majoring in history because, frankly, I had nine advanced placement credits in history. So it was the easiest <laughs> one to be done with. I, you know, I think I must have wasted half my time at Columbia, and I do regret that a bit because the more I've learned about the school over the years and all the amazing people who went there, the more I, I wish I'd paid attention a little more. But I did pay attention to like French New Wave and, and other things. So, What else is college for or what was it for before the pandemic? Um, you went to, um, what, you got your first job at Richmond? Is Was your first journalism job or was there one before that? No, the first one was a, a little weekly in Richmond, Virginia. The first real one. I mean, I, I'd worked for a couple of weeks south of there 
and then gotten this job in Richmond. And, um, I, you know, I wanted to be a, a writer and uh, I was beginning to realize two, two years or so out of college that if I didn't get paid to write, I wasn't going to be a writer. It wasn't going to happen. That novel was never going to get done and it wasn't very good anyway. Um, but you could and, do the Hemingway model. Well, you know, I didn't think of it that way. I just needed a job. <laughs> the first one paid a buck sixty-five an hour, but I could tell right away that I could do it. You know, and it wasn't so much even the writing; it was, it was being in a position where, as a journalist, where you could study things and be both sort of an insider, be part of a community, learn about you know, meet cops and lawyers and all kinds of people because you were covering them and you wrote about them, but at the same time have one foot outside of it, be a critic, be, you know, be able to stand aside that, that fit for me very well. And in that era, and we're still in the sort of Vietnam era and it's, you know, it's a hard way to figure out how you're going to live in the world and, and how you're going to reconcile yourself and living in this country where you're not very comfortable in some ways. And journalism for me was a really, really good fit. I want to. I don't want to uh, bypass your journalism career just because there's so much to it. But uh, but and when 1989 came around, you won a Pulitzer and you won it for sensitive and balanced reporting, which I thought really described how this book worked. Where you were <laughs> interested in all these different voices, you were interested in their point of view. Uh, you wanted them to tell the best version of their story, but you didn't want to diminish the conflict that happened between them or right. the results of those conflicts. I read a lot of movie books that are fan books, you know, uh, not the guys we were talking about earlier, but but a lot of other books that. Well, and, our podcast is somewhat guilty of that. Well, you know, you're a podcast. I mean, uh, you know, and, and different sensibilities, you know, can do different things. But I'm really interested in trying to get at something real and get under the skin of, you know, of a movie and of the people who made it. And, I, you know, these are such great characters. Yeah, they make the they're they're really what what drives the book forward. Having so many interesting people who can come on stage for a bit, do a few things, and then you know walk away. Whereas my main characters are still going forward with their project. I mean, it's hard to screw up writing when you've got you know people like Marion Doherty and Ann Roth and you know and 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 Anias Nin to write about. They're they're just too good. So I, I, to do them justice, it makes no sense to, um, you know, to do hagiography of them or anyone else. What makes sense, what makes them so fascinating is that they're, you know, they have lots of flaws. They're complicated people. They have their ups and downs. And yet they do these amazing things. To me, that's what I'm looking for. And, and um, I'm looking for complexity. I'm not looking for simple. simple yeah. Figures. And you and you definitely. um Enrich, you, 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 these characters are enriched, enriched because of the way you write them. Um, so you, you're a bureau chief. You go to the, you go to Washington Post in '79, but you end up a bureau chief in Southern Africa and Zimbabwe. Then you're in Jeru uh, uh, Jerusalem during the Palestinian uprising, and you end up in London from '89 to '92. This is what? all true, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> what is? What was? Well, let me ask you this, because obviously you're in the throes of some really. Big historical moments, especially with the the Palestinian uprising. Like, if we weren't a movie podcast show, I'd there's some questions I want to ask you about right now. But, but we're a movie podcast show. What was the movie like watching like in those different countries when you were bureau chief? The movie watching. Yeah, were you were you still going to a lot of movies around this time, well, or was sure. work taking over? 
when I could, <clears throat> I remember seeing the big chill in South Africa you know, <laughs> in 1983 and in Zimbabwe. I mean, we saw lots of movies there. I had two small kids and we'd go to these things on Saturday morning. They love dirty dancing. I mean, that we saw that at a drive-in in Zimbabwe. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wouldn't say it was the highlight of the intellectual highlight of my moving up <laughs> life, but it was, you know, I tried to introduce my kids to it. And you could go to move. There were a lot of movie theaters in Harare, Zimbabwe. There were a lot of movie theaters in Johannesburg, up in is in Israel. You know, you'd have this, these screens with. In Israel, sometimes there'd be subtitles in Hebrew, Arabic, and French covering like half the screen. I remember seeing Jonathan Demi's uh, Something Wild there and Mona Lisa, you know, uh, and, and so many, you know, yeah, we went to the movies. Movies were part of our lives and, and still are. Where where did movie writing then start to come in? Where you did you start to? Um, I mean, I, I have you have the, the piece on your website that's uh, about John Ford and going to Monument Valley to try to. That seems like that was the birth of that book, but that's a wide gap. That's like 2008 when that piece came out. When did film writing start to come in? Yeah, what 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 got you on that track that inspired you to go, you know, leave this whole journalistic side of, of you and start this whole track that you started on? Well, when I got back from overseas the second time, I took a buyout from the Washington Post. I'd worked there like 27 years. And it was, you know, a, a real lucky break to be there. And I had a wonderful career, as we've just talked about. I mean, it really was. I don't mean to, to downplay any of it. It was great. And I, you know, and it worked for me. But I took a buyout and I was lucky enough to get a visiting uh, professorship at Stanford. So I'm out on the West Coast. Uh, I want to, you know, I've got time to research a book and write a book. I don't want to do a book about, you know, foreign affairs that gets old really fast to have, you know, former foreign correspondents write about the places they used to be. Mm. I had to do an American book. And I'd always thought about searchers as a possibility. Um, you know, John Ford and John Wayne go off to Monument Valley. I mean, that, that you, you really can't miss with that. And other than that little beautiful little British Film Institute book about searchers, which is about 90 pages, you know, one of the one of their wonderful books that focus on a specific movie. No one had ever really, Searchers was a chapter in so many biographies of Ford or John Wayne. So I saw some open ground there and, um, and that's an American story. What I didn't know until like three days in was that it, there's a true story lurking way behind it in the past, that there's a frontier legend. If, I, if we'd grown up in Texas and gone to public school there, we would have heard of Cynthia Ann Parker and how she was kidnapped by Comanches and how she was eventually freed and what happened to her son, Quana, all of that. I didn't know any of that, but I discovered it very quickly because it was in a documentary of the 50th anniversary you know, DVD. So that, that suddenly put me in much more complex territory um, where I wasn't only thinking about the movie and John Wayne and John Ford. I was thinking about where the story comes from and eventually focused on the fact that the movie is only the latest iteration of the legend, that the legend begins in the 1830s and it gets told and retold and reshaped by every generation to meet its own sensibility and its own to explain itself in a way. That's what myths are about. And then Searchers comes along from that and first as a novel by a guy named Alan LeMay and then as this extraordinary movie. So that made my book much more complicated but much more satisfying. And 
kind of put me in territory I was comfortable in because the 40-year war between Comanches and Texans felt a little bit like some of the long wars I'd been watching as a foreign correspondent. So that that worked. I mean, the book did well critically. I really enjoyed doing it. And that set me on this, you know, path. And um, I'm still on it. Well, it's, you know, what a what a movie to pick for your first book, because it's such a flashpoint, that movie, in some ways. Um, uh, what amazes me is, uh, and I, maybe you could speak to this because you saw it as a kid, um, the, it, it seems to be just a, uh, a whole generation, especially filmmakers, they can't get away from it. Uh, Paul Schrader, John Milius, Steven Spielberg, uh, uh, Scorsese, uh, they're all... There's elements of the searchers in all their films, and and, and, it's, and it leaks into the screenplay multiple times, like for Schrader and stuff, uh, you know. And uh, it's just, uh, uh, isn't that? Uh, I guess I, I I think I, I can I think I guess I can relate to. I guess there's some films in my childhood that, that did that to me. But is that? Uh, could you feel that power and that artistry as a kid, and how it was such a. a I don't know, lack of a better word, monumental. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it stood out to me. I can't say, you know, when I saw it at eight years old, I loved it any more than I loved the Guns of Navarone or whatever. Um, but then I saw it again at Columbia. And uh, uh, not only at one of these, you know, in one of these little theaters, but Andrew Saris, the great yeah. voice film critic, taught a course in movie history at Columbia. And I happened to be lucky enough to take it that first year he taught. Oh, oh wow. Jealous, jealous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and he loved Searchers and he used Searchers among other films. And uh, by then I was, you know, after that, Searchers became the movie I sought out as the ultimate Western, but not just Western. I, I don't know. There was just something always about it. It just it just grabbed me. And um, I talked about it for years. And I knew it was, you know, that there was such a thing as a captivity narrative, you know, where, where a, a white person is kidnapped by these so-called barbarians. And, you know, there's literature about that from James Fenimore Cooper on. And I always knew there would be a chapter in a book like this about the captivity narrative and where searchers came from. But I had no idea I was walking into such rich terrain. Um, but I knew searchers would, you know, it is a. It's still a controversial movie. Um, I mean, Spielberg still. He shows it apparently every time he makes a movie. He takes his little <laughs> film company and they watch Searchers, hmm. uh, and you can see it again and again with him, uh, and with all these guys. Scorsese actually reviewed my book uh, in the Hollywood Reporter uh, because Searchers is still one of the most important movies in his life, and searchers had a film studies you know when film studies came out in in academia in the 60s that's when searchers and really a lot of john ford films rose up from just being you know a popular cowboys and indians director suddenly john ford was recognized as one of the great classical directors of american cinema that that starts there and some of these guys take those courses um, but I didn't take well, and you know, I sat in with Sarah, so I got a I got a piece of it there. I just always loved it. I knew I could write about it. I knew it would reward me <laughs> if I made the effort. And um, so why not? I was at Stanford. I had the time. I had the resources. I got in way over my head, and then I just did my best to dig my way out of it. 
How long did a book like that take to write? Well, that one was longer because I'm teaching school and eventually I moved from Stanford to the University of Texas, in part because I'd been in Texas researching searchers and, mm -hmm. you know, found Texas to be really interesting. So that took four or five years, really, to come to fruition. I find that published in 2013, I finished writing it in 2012, I'd say four years. I want to do a little bit of some nuts and bolts on how a book like this is done. Are you using um, how many research? Are you reading everything or how many researchers are you using? Are you using like grad students to help you out on this? How does this work? Because these books seem so well read, your sources and condensed. Well, it's partly uh, a balancing act. Um, being a journalist, I mean, having that, you know, essentially I'm just a journalist. And so the idea is to talk to everybody you can, and I've got to talk to them unless I can't get there for some reason. Um, at Stanford, I had I had a really you know brilliant young researcher, but she helped me lay out like the you're going to Texas. Here's the places you should go. Here are the people who are expecting to hear from you when you get there. But I did all the archival work um, because I can't think of any I didn't do because that that's the great joy in it to sort of dig in. And then, as I say, to meet people, I've got to do that as well. So if it looks well researched, and you know, and I and I'm pretty meticulous about going at it, it's just because I have the time. And um, and people are, you know, you go to someone and you, if you find someone who's still around, and admittedly, not too many people around from Searchers uh, or High Noon, but Harry Carey Jr. and Vera, Ma well, I didn't get to talk to Vera Miles, but you know, a few other folks who'd been around and then the children of folks who'd been around. Um, and you say to them, I want to talk to you about the, the greatest movie that you or your your relative were ever, was ever in. People tend to, you know, give you the time. Well, there's there's also just like pop culture stuff that sometimes like has a relevance to it. Like I, I, I didn't write down a ton of them, but I know one that blew me away towards the end of the Midnight Cowboy book was you mentioned uh, Noonday Demon which is such a great book on depression. And you reference it because uh, um, homosexuals have a tendency to suffer from depression and more suicide rates at the time. And I was just like, man, this guy is just, there's a wide range of, of reading he's, he's pulling from. But and that's the beauty of doing this kind of work. First of all, I get to learn things, mm. you know, and writing and choosing Midnight Cowboys. Suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm in New York in the 60s and a little surprised to see the level of homophobia in, in that era in New York. I mean, in liberal New York, you'd think that'd be the first place that gay people would have been uh, embraced or at least, you know, given some empathy, but not so much. And learning why that was and what that was about. And then the relationship in Jim Hurley's case between his sexuality and his depression. And, you know, these are this is all new territory for me, but it's the heart of what I'm interested in. Uh, getting under the skin of these characters and at the same time getting under the skin, if you will, of that era. Yeah. And and Midnight Cowboy, one of the things, I love discovering things like the, the homophobia of that era, how that related to what Midnight Cowboy was, how it affected Jim Hurley's life. All that worked for me. Um, misogyny, for that matter. Uh, writing about Marion Doherty, the great casting director, and the hurdles she had to overcome as a woman to be able to do what she did. Um, and Jennifer Saul, uh, you know, uh, acting in the movie. I mean, th th these movies are a great window, you know, to open to tell you about um, the sensibility of the era, 
what was going on, what was changing, because it's right at the dawn of gay liberation. I mean, the Stonewall riots occur about a month after the movie, you know, premieres. Yeah. So it just, it, it allows me to to do Vista Vision. <laughs> do we want to go ahead into the homophobia? Because I did want to ask you about, basically, after I finished Midnight Cowboy, I had to choose between the two books to start reading. I'm about halfway through the High Noon book. I didn't know if we wanted to talk about High Noon or we want to go straight into Midnight Cowboy. Man, it's uh, you're running the show. You tell me where you want to go. Obviously, I'll follow you. Uh, the one thing I want to say about High Noon that I'm into is there's a there's some fun overlaps between Waldo Salt in Midnight Cowboy and his blacklisting stories you use. And then what's in I mean, half the stuff I'm reading I'm into right now in the book is the Gary Cooper stuff, which is fascinating. But the blacklist is obviously a big part of the of your second book, High Noon. Yeah, I mean, you have all these talented people. Um, like Waldo, who, you know, who happened to be members of the American Communist Party. And uh, Waldo was a tried and true card carrying member. And he ran in a circle of people like that. And they're having a, a, a great time. Waldo was a saw himself as a as an artist who was writing, doing a new kind of writing to fit cinema. You know, remember, you know, when the when the talkies come in, uh, the studios suddenly think moguls start hiring writers, but they start hiring, you know, famous people like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and William Faulkner in part. They think that's what they need is really. <laughs> but Waldo and Joe Mankiewicz, who was Waldo's mentor and others realized, no, OK, well, there's dialogue now and you can hear it. But it's the image that's the main thing. And the writing has to be about the image and has to understand and support the image. So Waldo is a revolutionary in the way of writing, but he's also a communist. I remember it being particularly fascinating when you had that part in the book about Mankiewicz, because Mankiewicz, especially besides his brother, um, when you get around to all about Eve in the early 50s, like or Barefoot Contessa, he's a really showy dialogue writer too yeah he is he is i mean these guys are good at everything but mankiewicz comes on as a young turk early on mm. um and he's got this vision and waldo and and waldo is his chief acolyte if you will so anyway waldo like a lot of these guys after the war when when the house on american activities committee starts investigating so-called communist influence in the movie business Waldo's called to testify, and he doesn't get a chance to testify in 1947 with the original Hollywood 10. Um, but in 1951, when the committee comes back again, Waldo is called. There's no question that he's not going to cooperate with the committee. He's just not going to help them. He's not going. You not only have to confess that you yourself were, was a member or had been a member of the party, but you had to name other people. You had to name your friends and your former comrades and all these folks in order to prove, and you had to praise the committee and the wonderful work it was doing. It's a very sort of, you'll excuse the phrase, Trump-like, hmm. you know, uh, era. And Wallow can't do that. He, he refuses. And so he loses his job and uh, he takes his family and he goes to New York, but his career is shattered for years. This is a guy who existed to write movies and he can't write movies. And he's a uh, a big time alcoholic from earlier days and you know his family life falls apart he's miserable eventually the blacklist and the blacklist goes on for about a decade really and eventually uh, waldo starts writing some movies again he writes terrace bulba and a couple of other stinkers he said you know <sighs> and he's in a he's really a mess um and then this movie comes along 
And they need somebody like Waldo who understands images. They need somebody who's been in New York and knows a bit about culture there. And someone who's a jazzier, you know, who's and, and someone who understands the novel. And Waldo is, turns out to be that guy. So for him, it's a, it's a story of redemption. And, uh, you know, I loved learning about him. I loved writing about him. Well, I, 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 I Waldo only lived like a, a a decade after Midnight Cowboy, I guess. But I, I it was fast, or a little more than that. But I thought it was fascinating. He, in my head, he was someone like a John Huston, who was started John Huston as a writer, where right. like he he had a really long multi decade career, and he was still writing edgy stuff all the way through. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, Waldo then goes on, you know, to do three or four more great, great screenplays, including contributing to Coming Home, um, which is a movie I hadn't seen. I think I hadn't seen Coming Home since it, when it first came out in the late 70s. Watching it again, uh, it's a little schlocky here and there, but it's also quite brilliant. Both There's the a acting, lot of modern stuff in there. You know. Yeah, yeah, the acting and the screenplay. And, you know, um, that's John Voight and Jane Fonda and Swallow Salt. Um, I love. I watched uh, Day of the Locust last night for the first time. What'd you think? I like Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of my reaction too. I've never been a fan of the novel. That's the problem, I guess. So. Oh, I like the novel, but you know, it's interesting. So many of these same talented people who made in that cowboy are making day of the locust and Roth, the costume designer and Marion doing the casting and Schlesinger and Hellman and, and, and salt. And yet, it just doesn't. It just never gets off the ground. For- well, you make the point in the book that it it, it felt like the uh, didn't Schlesinger say it was the two leads that he felt just didn't come together the same way. Midnight Cowboy seems like lightning in a bottle, and that's why I think like Mary Doherty is like the, your celebration of her in the book. Like she is the unsung hero, kind of literally the unsung hero because of her credit being taken away. Of yeah. Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, that's true. Um, She's crucial. The acting in Midnight Cowboy is so good. And not just Voight and Hoffman. I mean, they're superb. And I think they're one of the main reasons we still want to watch this movie. But the supporting cast, the other folks who are who are in sort of individual scenes with Voight along the way from, you know, from Sylvia Miles, who gets nominated for Best Actress Academy Award for seven minutes of playing this aging hooker who, you know, takes money off Joe Buck early on. A quintessential predatory New Yorker, you know, uh, and then Bob Balaban, the, the pimply little kid in the, you know, in the sleazy movie theater and uh, Barnard Hughes, Bernard Hughes, you know, the customer late in the movie who drove Buck gets money off of. They're all so good. And um, I think they really and that's Marion because she knew every actor in New York. The other thing about it is, you know, they wouldn't have needed Marion Doherty or 10 years earlier, they wouldn't have used her. If a studio had made this movie, they would have had their own casting directors. They had their own people on salary 10 years earlier. They just used whoever was available for these supporting roles. But what's happened over that decade is the studios are beginning to shrink rapidly. They're not making the kind of money they were making. They're they're basically eliminating, you know, literally hundreds and thousands of workers. And so somebody like Marion Doherty, and especially in New York, becomes essential to anybody who wants to make a movie there. And uh, she, you know, she was really responsible for some of the great stuff. The nice thing is that Schlesinger was a man who was willing to share credit. She doesn't get a credit in the movie because she got into a fight with Jerry Hellman, the producer, over whether she could get a single card, get her name yeah. out. 
hard. And Jerry, um, who's still alive and who I talked to a couple of years ago, really regrets that the two of them had this fight and that you know, he said, well, I was figuring she'd come back and we'd work it out. She doesn't. She says, if you're not going to give me a single card, take my name off it. And he says it's probably the biggest mistake, the one he's most remorseful about in his entire career. But there it is. You want to talk a little bit about because Ted, when like he watched rewatched Manakai before I did, and you seem to be really retaken with the performances. Yeah, I've had a you know uh, I saw I'm uh, 62 now, and I saw the film. I'm uh, I think before I was really old enough to see the film. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and <laughs> I I remember uh, I love the fact in the book where you talk about the editing and the flash. Um, what are they? Uh, what do they call it? Flash, um, flash, flash present. Flash present. Flash cuts is one term. Yeah. Yeah. You and uh, I uh, remember <clears throat> what was really uh, an eye opener is uh, I was as a kid seeing this, and of course, you know, I, I was a kid. Uh, the subject matter of the flash points, uh, the flash cuts, and what, and they were so fast to me. I, I was confused and mystified. And, and and I was like, what what exactly happened to Joe? And what was going on? And blah blah blah. You know, of course now I, I watch it, and we're so used to movies editing so fast in MTV post MTV world that I could I, I every scene was very clear to me. And of course I've seen it several times over the yeah. years now, so it's very clear what exactly is going on in those uh, points. But I love the fact that you dived in in, the, in your book you dive into that and how that was a very important uh part of the film because at that time that kind of editing to get a, instead of just doing a normal everyday flashback type of scenario in a film it was what he was going on in his mind right but so it operated on two different levels it operated on the emotional level and on the story level uh, the backstory level. So that was just uh, another fascinating, and I'm so glad you keyed into that because that that was a big thing for me when I saw it originally as a kid going, the mystery of it, those those edits. And then now, they're very clear to me now, but I think it, uh, it was, yeah, uh, I thought that was a very uh, integral point that you made about that. They, they can be mysterious when you see it for the first time. In, in Hurley's book, the first half of the novel essentially takes place in Texas, and it's more or less a chronological tale of Joe Buck and his life and times and what happens to him and how he's neglected as a child and how he's raped here and his relationship with Annie, this one woman who he has some kind of thing going with. All that's laid out in relatively chronological order. But, you know, you can't make a three-hour movie that way. Um, and so they, they wanted to cling to some of that, but in the end, they simply used it this way. And again, it's Waldo salt sort of suggesting let's do it this way and they're not flashbacks you know we, we're going to stay in joe's head and we're going to see what joe's seeing as he's experiencing the things we're watching in the movie you know so he's there in the balcony with this pimply kid who's you know and who's having sex with him and he's thinking then about what had happened with annie and having sex with her i mean it's kind of obvious on one level um and i'm not sure they always work but they, they are part of the effort to keep this movie in Joe Buck's head, in his dreams, in his, you know, as he processes these things. And in that level, 
partly thanks to, you know, to Waldo and Schlesinger, but partly because John Voight, I think, is so good at embodying this character. Um, it works. It works. And then the more you see it, the better it works. Well, yeah, well, you, you'd have the flash cuts with uh, Dustin Hoffman showing it with Ratso in them. You know, they, well, uh, they're, they're almost, uh, you would experience that in a dream, a I, nightmare. See, I think, um, I mean, I think speaking to Waldo Salt, that the fact that you point out Void is the is in every scene in the movie or is the is the through line of the movie, and that, if you're going to do flashbacks like that, that makes it work. Um, it's definitely more focused than something like at the time would have been Point Break or something like that, or Point Blank, but um, but um, I know this last viewing, I, I, you said some of them don't work. Uh, I, re I really had this feeling they blend they're they're like in a blender like it because it because it feels like they're saying so many different things like uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm i still want to talk about uh how well you describe new just like almost a history of homophobia in new york and in cinema and but there was that one description of um new york one of the homophobia things i loved in the book was your description of the new york times bad reporting on it in the early 60s and one, you, you use some psychologists to talk about how imply that like homosexuality comes from basically bad parenting or ill parenting. And there was a vibe sometimes in some of the bad stuff that like Joe Buck's childhood led to his just general confusion when it came to sexuality. But at the same time, when you mix it with things like... Um, you have the great description of the commercial with the dog wig and like all the pop culture commentary and just Times Square in general, especially now what Times Square has become. It just goes into a blender and it's it may be confused and maybe some of this is just the modern reading of it, but it, it does work for me. It still works. It's just. Well, yeah, that Plessinger and Salt. Uh, largely, it's not really Hurley. It's not really from the novel. It's them trying to capture the zeitgeist, and they're they're like they're like their eyes are wide open. They're you know they're outsiders coming to New York. Schlesinger's interested in everything, and um, so he'll see a guy lying on the sidewalk and say, "Write that down. Let's put that in the movie." The dog, you know. Oh, let's get that in the movie. I mean, just you know, all the portals are open, and this guy. And he uses his own sensibility about these things and his own visual sense. And, you know, some of them work better than others. I mean, the Andy Warhol party scene in the novel, it's like a beatnik party from the early 60s, you know, with bongo drums and two guys, you know, in berets dancing together. I mean, that never would have worked in 1969. Well, Schlesinger, you know, gets convinced to make this into something else. And I'm not sure that's the best scene in the movie. Uh, I'm sure it isn't. But at the same time, he's always looking to portray New York in all of its layers and in the ways that at that time, you know, street people and artists and young people and druggies, you know, everybody was kind of coming across each other. New York was this wide open, scary, but, you know, very fecund place hmm. with a lot going on. So that's Schlesinger and that's Salt more than anything else, ginning it up. And, and they, they filmed so much of that stuff and they left a lot of it on the editing floor, but what we see is what they left in. Uh, again, watching it again, just, just recently, uh, uh, it's interesting. It's another, it seems to be, uh, see if you agree with this or not, that uh, it's a film that it still works, amazingly works, and it, I think it changes with you as, as you grow older and age and watch it. It can, it can work as a time capsule. It can work as uh, 
just good filmmaking. But this time around, it, I really zoned in on the relationship of of the two guys. I and I don't think I really. I think your book prepped me to pay attention to yeah, that too. And and and, uh, and then that sequence where he uh, he's wiping the sweat off of Ratzel's face. The improvisation. And, and, and that oh, hand yeah. when he just leans on him. The, I, I just like almost like almost like the uh, focal point of the film just zone just almost like you put a spotlight on that scene right there and then the go from there to the end it's yeah. just uh, so moving emotionally uh, a depth of emotion that's in this film that will ride you through once you get past you know your first viewing where you're trying to piece it together or you're watching it again for you know just the filmmaking aspect of it uh, and the, the soundtrack and the editing and the cinematography and now you, you get this whole emotional ride that you can take with it that's just uh, that really works <laughs> I really think, Ted, that in the end, that's what makes the movie last. That makes it an enduring classic. I mean, they're wonderful thing. Other things are quite wonderful in it. The music, you know, various things, the costumes for that matter and the act. But that kind of but the relationship between these two solitary figures, you know, both seriously damaged from different worlds. And yet they, you know, God's loneliest creatures, these street people. And the way they they sort of reluctantly come together and have to own up to their own vulnerability, if you will, and and they forge this wary partnership that's about survival as much as anything, that that is the heart of the movie. That's the heart and soul of the movie. That's what Salt really recognized. That's why they gave him the job of writing it in the end. That's what Schlesinger wanted. And that's what makes the movie, to my mind, an enduring classic. Uh, because that's a human story we can tell in 2021. We can watch it, God knows, maybe in 2071. I mean, that doesn't go away. And I think that's the heart of the greatness of the movie. And hopefully, as we go down the road, maybe we won't be around, but maybe uh, when Criterion does a re-release, they'll put your book with it. Uh, you know, because your book is just a worthy companion to this film, very yeah. much so. I mean, I think part of the, um, I was really, to the Ratso-Joe um, Buck relationship, like, it's one of the reasons I'm glad you had so much Healy in the, uh, Healy in the in the book, just because it, it seems like it has to come from the novel, that relationship. Um, I did, you mentioned uh, Andy Warhol. One of the things I love about your book, also, I mentioned the compartmentalization. There's so many, like, mini histories in there that yeah. I just found, like, and, and you find a way of, like, they, they, they don't, for someone that's vaguely familiar with them or even knowledgeable about them, you still find new ways of just retelling them that doesn't seem like if someone's familiar with it, they don't, they, they learn something new. I mean, I had stuff like uh, the Warhol scene. You talk about the long Warhol films. I know one Ted <laughs> really took to was the, um, uh, this history of kitchen sink cinema in Britain and how it switched to, uh, with Julie Christie and oh, yeah. casting. Right. Well, uh, was it, was it, was it your book? Uh, I, I'm getting confused cause I was watching some other stuff. I'm a big Richard Lester fan of the whole, uh, British uh, era. <laughs> and, the, and that, uh, it was John Schlesinger that Julie Christie walks out of, uh, Billy Lyre and walks into the British pop scene, uh, taking the British cinema with her. Is that, uh, yeah, it takes the train yeah. to London and takes British cinema with yeah, it. That's a wonderful that's, line. That's yeah. a wonderful line. Well, that's not my line. It's uh, but, Anthony Walker. You know, it's this great film critic. Yeah, uh, it's his line. It's a great book, Hollywood England. If you haven't read it, I actually I think I have one. I have. I need to pull that off the shelf. I think. Well, again, the synthesis, like uh, you quotes from uh, Celluloid Closet. Like I've never gotten around to reading it. I've oh met, yeah, that's another, I'm ashamed to say I haven't yeah. read it either. Uh, it's a great book. It's yeah. a, it's a landmark book. Uh, yeah, I mean, but that's what this allows me to do. I was, 
you know, I, the kitchen sink drama was something I saw at Columbia. I mean, when, when those movies were five or six years old when I started college, and you could see those. You could see them at the Thalia. There were lots of showings at Columbia of various things. Um, and I really loved those movies. I uh, was really struck by them, by Billy Lyre, by Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, by the whole slew of them. And I still am. I mean, it was a joy to go back and watch those movies again for this book, both because I, I love them and, and they're really good movies. I mean, they really hit you in a solid way. Um, a Taste of Honey, which I, I don't think I saw first time through. That's a very powerful movie. It's beautifully yeah. done, and it's a raw movie. It's Tony Richardson. You know, Tony Richardson gets a lot of grief for being a popular entertainer or trying to be, I guess, because of Tom Jones, which I also like a lot. But A Taste of Honey is everything a movie could possibly be. It's so real. So it was a real pleasure to be able to go back and invoke those things. I was worried I was, I never tried to linger too long on any particular, you know, moment. It works because it's so tight. The book well, is so yeah, tight. That's what I was really curious because you do such a good job. You go, you be, you're touching on everybody. You're catching everybody up on their, uh, you know, John Barry or Nielsen sure. or uh, all these uh, different people. And yet I was curious, like, do you find yourself fighting to keep put more in? Do you, are, are you trying to be judicious and keep it tight? Uh, uh, was there a lot on the cutting room floor that we didn't see? Uh, no, not uh, really. I mean, I try to keep it tight because I don't want to lose people. And it's great to be able to toggle from the movie to, you know, the history and back and forth. Whenever things start to slow down a little, you know, I can move on to the next thing. I, at this point in my long and checkered career, I just, uh, book, books work for me because they allow me to linger as long as I want to. Okay. And I hope, I'm not losing too many people. I was worried with the kitchen sink drama section that I was slowing down the narrative a little too much. Uh, I think you, I think you, I think you hit a right balance. And and I think for, especially, uh, it, you know, you don't know what kind of reader you're getting, you know, right. uh, and uh, they need this history. They need this info. And it's like a little refresher course for me. Yeah. But as a, for a new person coming into the film, they're going to go, oh, I need to go search this stuff out, you know. Well, there's even I, uh, little things like um, your history of appearances of gay characters in in American cinema. Like you had Children's Hour and Advise Consent. But the one movie, the British movie that I found fascinating that I'd never heard of was uh, Victim. The is oh. directed by Basil Dearden. I was yeah. completely unfamiliar with this movie. I was I'd seen it years ago, but it didn't strike me at the time because I did I didn't know much of the background or what a breakthrough movie this was. It's a terrific movie, but you know, uh, Dirk Bogart he's fabulous in this movie, and it's very well done. It's way ahead of its time. They wouldn't even show it in the states because it was too sympathetic to homosexuals. Was it the Time Magazine review said that or something? Exactly. Like that? I mean, they they sneered at it. But it's a it's a groundbreaking movie, and yeah, it's a great pleasure. Those kinds of things I want to deliver. You know, in the end, the, the other thing about writing books, it's my book, so <laughs> you know, it's going to have in there what I want. And it's great. You know, I worked for thirty years for a wonderful newspaper, and I had a lot of room to maneuver. But I also had deadlines and news to cover and all that. Now, you know, I sign a, a contract to do a book. And then I go away and nobody even knows what I'm doing for the, except my wife and the immediate family know what I'm up to for the next couple of years. And it's totally my call. Nobody's telling me do this or don't do that. It's whatever I can make of it. And if it sucks, then, you know, we have a problem. But, but um, I love these movies and I can 
bring that, you know, certainly if nothing else, my affection for them and my regard for them is something I can try to deliver on. Well, one point, as tight as this book is written, um, I mean... I mean, you Ted, you were telling me this because you read the book first, how like this movie or this book feels like a biography of the movie. And I made the observation that you don't even get to the novel until 102 pages in. It's chapter seven. that's called the novel that the, the book finally comes in. Everything else is the background leading up to the genesis of this movie. Well, I got to get Schlesinger and Hurley in there. And I've got to tell you about British cinema. And I've got in you know, about Hollywood beginning to, you know, unravel and. Yeah, there's a lot to do, and that's a little dangerous. I mean, I wrote a lot about Schlesinger, and I wrote a lot about Hurley, and then I and I knew I was going to have to do this. They're born relatively at the same time. Mm. I took the four chapters of Hurley and three or four chapters of Schlesinger, and I shuffled them. Mm. You know, I just put them together and out, and to keep the book relatively chronological, because that's the only way I know how to do this. I mean, mm. other people can do it more creatively. I think and do their own flashbacks. But for me, it's like got to march forward. And if the reader hooks on, if I can get the reader early on, if I can convince the reader in the introduction that this will be about the movie and we'll get back to the movie later. (laughs) But meanwhile, let's start at the beginning. I don't know if it works or not, but it's the only way I can do it. And I, you know, and I've, I've done it three times now. I really liked writing this book. That now that's a big change. I love researching, but writing is hard. And, and uh, <laughs> but this time I felt like, yeah, you know, I, this is how I'm going to do it, and I hope it works. The uh, you got a so you did the Searchers, Cow, John Wayne's Cowboy. You did uh, High Noon with uh, Gary Cooper in Cowboy Western. And that cowboy, he's a as a west, he's he's superficially a western character because he's Joe Buck with the the fringe. So, are we going to see more series of westerns? Are you are, are you going to surprise us with something way off beat at next time uh, at, at some point? Uh, it's kind of you kind of got a western theme going here, Glenn. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, no, I think this is the last western. Um, and I'm going to take a break from movies altogether this next time because I've got a, a, a fellowship to write a biography or to write about Brian Epstein, the late manager of the Beatles. Ooh. I was going to ask you because I read your uh, essay that you had written on there because it, it it seemed like, I don't know if this is just proximity and time, but there was some parallels between Schlesinger and Brian Epstein in the way you wrote about him. I, I think so. Um but just having gotten into the subject of, of homosexuality and how it was treated in that era and uh, Brian's gay and Brian's Jewish, I mean, he's an outsider. Uh, there are just interesting things going on with him. And, and uh, I've always wanted to write about him. I, I tried 15 years ago, spent some time in Liverpool, but for a variety of reasons, I just put it aside. But after doing this book, I feel like confident enough to foolishly like, you know, waltz right into that. But I got a number of other movies I'm very interested in. If the time, when the time comes, I'll be back doing movies. I'm sure of that. Um, it, I mean, I know it's not good for a writer to talk about stuff before they're done. They're done with it. But do you want to mention some titles, maybe? Well, I guess the one I'll mention is Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Oh, nice. oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, you know, always loved. It's another one right up in my top five of you know. That's worthy, book worthy, very much so. 
Yeah, and I think writing about that time at the dawn of women's of the modern women's liberation movement and that book being about women in the workplace, it's a comedy, it's a drama, it's very rich. I think I could have, uh, you know, an interesting time trying to suss some of that out. And I love Billy Wilder. I mean, you know, there isn't a better, you know, I, I like popular movie makers. And Billy Wilder is the ultimate popular movie maker, I think, the ultimate artist. So we'll see. Uh, I don't know how many more of these I have in me as I <laughs> age, but my brain cells seem to be holding out long enough that as long as I write everything down, I'll be okay. Going back to the Epstein uh, book, are you, are you, have, you, have you prepared yourself to jump into the Beatle fandom of the world of the, of the Beatles? Because that's a, who you know, I, I have a friend of mine who keeps on going, how can they do? How, do we really need another book on the Beatles? You know, I keep, I keep on, and I go, yeah, we do. Just like I, we were talking about Dylan earlier when we started this podcast, it's like the you're talking, you're talking, you're dumping, you're jumping into some deep water there, uh, the uh, to bring some new perspective and at, uh, a, a POP to that. You know, well, it's a challenge and probably a foolish one to take up, but I think Brian is an, still an underestimated figure in a lot of ways. And I agree. I agree. You know, there's only one actual biography of him from the 80s, and it's a good book, but it doesn't really sort of face the questions around his, his sexuality and his background um, in a way that I that I want to. And and uh, and that's a story. It's such a beautiful story. I think it's always worth retelling. And when I have a character like Brian to take me through it, I'm hoping. I can navigate it. And, you know, I don't want to write a 500 page doorstopper or something. I want to write a book about him and how he saw it and how he moved through it. And um, I'm going to, you know, the nice thing about Midnight Cowboy, about these other books, it's given me, as I say, the self-confidence to at least try this. So we'll see. Well, I'm looking forward to it very much so. Okay. The big story from the book that I never heard before was, um, Arthur Krim from United Artists self-censoring and giving it the X. He he was it was he was was it friendly or someone was on the UA board named uh, Aaron Stein who is uh, at Columbia and he uh, he wrote homosexuals are narcissists who choose to be gay because they could love people exactly like themselves and he was the guy influencing Krim and Krim the 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 they got an R rating and he was just like maybe we shouldn't be showing homosexuality to to. to children 17. I've never heard this story before. It's, you know, in a history of United Artists um, many years ago, this is mentioned, but what what that historian is, uh, Tino Balio is quoting from is a book written by Stephen Farber, who was on the board as a student member of the of the ratings board very early on in the time of the ratings board. Remember, you know, Hollywood had dropped the old uh, production code system and put in the rating system in an effort to allow for more adult movies and more adult themes, trying to capture, you know, newer audiences um, by basically loosening up and, and things have been loosened up for them in movies like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The, the old rules were being violated. So they put in the rating system. They rate it, the Midnight Cowboy, you know, they look at Midnight Cowboy and they give it an R. But then Arthur Krim, the head of United Artists, the folks who have financed the movie, a guy who loves the movie, but he's nervous about it. Because again, people look at homosexuality in that era, the conventional wisdom, the, the Freudian psychiatric uh, priesthood was describing homosexuality as, as an illness 
as, as a syndrome and, and also as something that could be contagious. It could you, be like COVID-19. Gay men can pass it on to younger people, younger men, you know, uh, I, I, Ted, you and me. I mean, we could, you know, just by watching this movie. And so Arthur Krim takes it to a psychiatrist, a prestigious uh, Columbia University shrink named Aaron Stern. And Aaron Stern confirms his deepest fears that, yeah, you know, the sex in this movie is very transactional. Uh, the women are very cold and harsh. I could see young people seeing this and being attracted to homosexuality. So Arthur Krim himself rates it an X. And uh, Steve Farber wrote about this in a book, in a memoir of being on the ratings board way back in 1971. And uh, I'd heard about this, you know, looking at eventually at Steve's book. Steve is a professor at UCLA. Now he's been a film studies guy and a, and a film critic for many years. And I, I talked to him about it. I saw a few other things. And um, put it together. And, and it, again, it fits so well in my overall theme of what does this movie tell us about the era? Well, it tells us that people were scared to death of, of, of homosexuality and its so-called contagious properties. But Arthur Krim doesn't tell anybody he's rated at X. So everybody assumes it was the ratings board who did it. And uh, United Artists actually figures out ways, as you know, of taking advantage of this rating. I mean, in their advertising campaign, they say, you know, everything you've heard about Midnight Cowboy is true. And that appeals to people, you know, like you, Ted, and like me. I mean, that that helped bring me into the theater, the idea that this was something really different and, and dangerous, you know, uh, was an attraction to a certain kind of person. Of course, in the end, the movie gets nominated for seven Academy Awards and it wins Best Picture. And United Artists wants to take advantage of all that and, and wants to get it back to an R so it can be shown in more theaters, so they can advertise it in more newspapers. And the rating board says, well, we already rated it R. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, no controversy. And of course, you know, also, I, you know, you have to remember... Uh, at the beginning of the rating system, X wasn't, uh, you know, it was supposed to, it was, it was supposed to be used for good intentions and, 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 and not, it didn't, it didn't exactly, it didn't exactly mean it was uh, pornographic or uh, had, you know, nudity or anything. It was just adult, very, very adult themes. And of course we, the, the, they didn't, why well, was it copyrighted properly or trademark it or the, the porn industry took it over. So they, you know, they, now they got the NC 17, blah, blah, blah. But uh, at the time, you know, it wasn't the stigma of X wasn't that bad. It was just, you know, Hey, we, we got some very adult stuff in this movie, you know? Yeah, um, no. And, and uh, John Schlesinger and Jerry Hellman said they were fine with the X rating originally that they yeah. thought it should only be for adults. But again, this this enters into also this these questions about homophobia, and that's really the reason why it was rated X. And uh, it's just another indication of the sensibility of the people involved in this at the time—a sensibility that changed a lot in a few a few years later. It's always it's it was fun to hear the uh, uh, you never get to hear the uh, uh, the ratings board on a positive note. <laughs> so, <laughs> say hey, we gave it to our the original, you know, because usually where the books are always you know uh, pouncing on them and, and bludgeoning them, you know. So <laughs> it was exactly they, they this the big bad ratings board was so prudish and you know <laughs> that it gave this movie an X, you know that sort of thing. And uh, uh, as I say, Arthur Krim kept it to himself, and later on they switched it around. Um, one of the things I was, I, I was thinking of, of why the book is so compulsively readable is there's certain times I would get into the narrative 
and I'd get ahead of it. I'd start thinking, when are you going to mention this? And you would usually, by the end of the book, have dispensed with it really quickly. I mean, there was a bit, you mentioned the Stonewall riots. I was wondering, like, when are you going to talk about Stonewall? But the big one happens in the last pages when you're winding up everything else. One big, uh, especially when you talk about uh, John Boyd around the time of coming home, I was wondering, when are you going to get around to talking about John Boyd's politics <laughs> now? And you dispense with it, like, within one very generous paragraph, I think. Well, you know, I faced a, ch a choice with Voight, especially. What was I going to write about? Um, and I really wanted to focus on Midnight Cowboy. Had I gone off on that route with Voight, or had I uh, explored the allegations in the Me Too era against Dustin Hoffman, I would have had to do an awful lot of research, for one thing, and the, it would have changed the whole focus of the movie. I saw these guys in part and when I when I made my effort to interview them and it took a while to get to each of them. I said, I want to talk to you about your career up to Midnight Cowboy and what you did with the movie and how it affected your career afterwards. But I purposely shied away from these other things. Um, I just thought that wasn't what I was writing about. And it was my choice. I mean, I could have done it differently, I suppose, but I think it would have put a much different balance on the movie. My my portrait of Void surprised me. I mean, in interviewing both him and in interviewing Jennifer Salt, who was his girlfriend at the time of the movie and others about him, to see what a sincere, dedicated, obsessive, I knew he was an obsessive actor, but to see how that played out and how much he loved working on that movie and the joy he brought to it and his work with Hoffman, to hear it not only from him, but for others who'd worked with him at that time. So it's a, it's a fairly sympathetic portrait of Voight, but his obsession, his going 150% on whatever he does, I think maybe partly the explanation of why the Voight we're seeing now is 150% in some other place. Yeah. I just, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I had enough trouble dealing with Jim Hurley and John Schlesinger. Uh, I, you know, uh, I left Voight alone. I think one of the things I really found making that wrap up really work was you you talked about how he's disavowed so many of his other movies, including Coming Home, but you said he still loves and respects the work he did on The Night Cowboy. Absolutely. I mean, uh, he knows that it made his career. He knows he was good in it. He loved doing it. He loved John, working with John Schlesinger and Dustin Hoffman. That's all sincere. He is a great actor. You know, he's made a lot of movies over the years and some of them are not that good, but he's always good uh, because he's so, uh, you know, he's such a craftsman. He's such an artist. He cares a lot about it. And there's a lot of humanism in this guy. So I can't begin to sort any of that out. And uh, that might be somebody else's book someday. <laughs> I, I think my last observation was uh, I loved how you made you. It, I have not watched Midnight Cowboy maybe more than twice this, this second time, but one movie I have watched many, many times. You say is a companion piece to Midnight Cowboy, Taxi Driver, and that was such a such a great observation. Yeah, interesting, uh, yeah, kind of a, a a little bit of a bookend uh, type movie with it. Yeah, I had seen Taxi Driver again when it came out, and I've seen it several times, but I hadn't seen it in a long time when I bought myself the Criterion version and availed myself of all the little pieces of it and then just watched the thing. 
And it blew me away. It is one of the great movies, I believe, of the second half of the 20th century. It's right up there. And, uh, you know, what one of the things Midnight Cowboy does is it opens the gates for all these sort of gritty, interesting, you know, almost uh, neo-realist New York movies of the early 70s from Mean Streets and French Connection, uh, Serpico and, you know, Dog Day Afternoon. These are wonderful New York movies. They paint a portrait of a city that's falling apart that's unraveling. And I think Taxi Driver is the ultimate one of those. And it's it's almost like a horror film. And it's sort of, you know, the, the Midnight Cowboy's evil twin, I think of it, because Joe Buck, for all his problems and his loneliness and everything, is not a psych, you know, hasn't become a psychotic killer. Whereas Travis Bickle is at the other end of the spectrum in a city that now, well, through Travis's eyes, is, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah writ large. So I, I, I tried to write a little bit about those movies. And, and, but again, that's one of the many ways that Midnight Cowboy is a groundbreaking movie that sort of opens the gates. Different technology, it's easier to take a lug a camera around New York. Audio equipment's better. You can do things on the streets. You can make these kinds of movies that you couldn't have made 10 years earlier. But Midnight Cowboy, I think, is the first one to really take advantage of all that and sort of open the, open the door. The uh, in regards to Taxi Driver, in some ways, I feel that you could. It's uh, similar to Midnight Cowboy. You could approach it in different ways and different themes going on. And and uh, I think one thing that strikes me as I watch it more and more is the loneliness. The the, the theme of loneliness and the in that God's film. lonely man. Not not yeah, God's lonely man. It's Schrader again, um, and, yeah. and and Paul Schrader writing the screenplay and the fact that I guess maybe this has hit me as we were talking uh, as you were talking about it. Uh, Maybe if Travis had uh, run into a Joe Buck, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't have turned out as bad. He, he didn't have a Joe Buck in his life. The, the, the you know he's the Razzo Rizzo. That's some very wishful humanist thinking, Ted. I'm just you know saying. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's fascinating. Who knows? I mean, yeah. Travis is a lost soul. Yes, uh, but Joe Buck is too. Uh, you know. They're just wonderful. I think they're just wonderful movies. And they're, they're my, you know, I love those other movies that I name checked earlier, but those two are the, I, I would say the high points of the New York, New Hollywood era. And it's, a, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, ironic and hilarious in a way that you say they're wonderful movies. I think they're so too. They're just extremely two of my pantheon films there and they're wonderful and watchable. But if uh, to a superficial general viewer, it's like, uh, these are, yeah, are you sure, Ted? You know, there's violence in New York and grimy, and you know, on a superficial. If you just you gotta you gotta you gotta be you gotta dive into them, and I think that, and your book does a wonderful idea of showing that and well, showcasing. Both that. these movies made a lot of money, and I oh, think yeah, yeah, and Taxi Taxi Driver does like. But nowadays, I'm just thinking of some. I, if I if I went to a kid today and showed them like the poster art, some stills in the movie, they would. I don't know if they would. I in. almost showed my niece Taxi Driver. I thought she'd be into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we didn't mention Adam Hollander, um, for the grime, but I, I, do we need to go into that? I mean, like I, 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 he's, he seems to be a key part of the grime of the movie, but, um, and it was his first movie. That's yeah, crazy. That's what's amazing. Right. Yeah. But he's got that documentary background and that background in neorealism, you know, he's trained in Poland and he believes in that stuff. Schlesinger grew up on that stuff and loved it. Schlesinger has the documentary film background from the BBC these guys are on the same wavelength and that's one of the things of the quality of the movie is to see what New York really looked like in 1968. I mean, they give it to you. 
you know, all, all the on the streets, the long lens stuff is the stuff that always is iconic to me. <laughs> just how much of like they had to have stolen and uh, just him walking in crowds, those long lens shots. That's what Midnight Cowboy is to me. But I mean, your book changed a lot of that. And I mean, I'll be honest, like I wasn't. My first view of Midnight Cowboy wasn't mind blowing. I mean, reading your book was got me excited again about it. It was it was it was such a fruitful reviewing of this, and it's, it's such a great book. I'm, I'm, thank you for well, thank, thank you, for you guys. It. I mean, you know, I I really appreciate your interest in it and the fact that you know that it works for you. That's that's great because you I never know, mm-hmm. you know, sitting up here in my little attic, <laughs> you know, um, what's what people are really gonna gonna get out of this, but. I feel like in a number of cases, I've, people who have read it have been very positive about it. And um, it's a great movie. I, I, I respect it more now than I did when I started out. I, I understand a little more about how great it is and why it's so great. And I'm glad I can pass that on a little bit. It, it deserves to be, it's a little bit overlooked, I would say, in the pantheon yeah. from the late 60s, early 70s. You know, The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and The Last Picture Show, all of which I love. This movie deserves to be right up there and John Schlesinger I think deserves to be up there with Scorsese and you know and these other guys as the great filmmakers of that era yeah I think modern best picture winners instantly become forgettable but you mentioned someone's in a period for some reason Midnight Cowboys the best picture winner that kind of got lost in that crowd so um but anyway here's to uh now us watching the apartment and finding a waiting for a new way to appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Give me some time. I got a few things uh, to kick away first. Uh, Glenn, before you leave, I got a couple things I want to throw. I, I just, this is a really trivia about uh, the searchers. It, it obviously is becoming a, a, a deep dish film fan as I have become obsessive and, and, and you can't, you keep on coming across searchers, searchers, searchers in uh, so many different ways. I have, I'm on my bucket list as I want to, get in my car and drive one way through Monument Valley playing uh, the weight from the band because of right. easy rider. And right. then I want to drive back this. I want to drive back, uh, double back through it and play once upon time, Jill's theme and once upon time in the West uh, uh, going the other direction on my, on my car soundtrack, you know, my car radio. So sure. that's one of my bucket lists. Uh, one quick question. I'm, and I'm embarrassed to say this. I haven't read your uh, high noon book. I will. Pro- I promise you uh, the, the, uh, do you go into, I'm curious, do you go into the uh, Howard Hawks and the El Dorado, uh, Howard Hawks and Rio Bravo uh, uh, response to that film? Because I'm, I'm, I'm really just so curious of what exactly is Howard trying to do against Zimmerman with that film? Because I, I keep on reading that. I keep on coming across that in other books, you know, about right, this, is, right. this is the response to uh, I do. And I'm like, oh, what? okay, let's, let's hear about it, you know. I didn't know. I maybe gave it a paragraph. Yeah. more than that um well a paragraph yeah. from you is a lot yeah it could be yeah, a lot right, right. <laughs> what do you, what do you, what's your takeaway Real- who will swear by rio bravo it's not my favorite um you know wayne was so pissed off about high noon um he saw it as a commie movie uh and so wayne wayne was happy to get together with hawks hawks was pretty right wing also I don't know what it was that really offended Hawks about about High Noon. The sheriff being oh, cowardly, the sheriff being scared and trying to round up the town people. Uh, that why couldn't he do this by himself? You know why couldn't the sheriff, the G- Gary Cooper, man, yeah. can simply you know get out a couple of guns and go, uh, you know, do it the way you do it in a western. Go shoot those guys the way John Wayne would have done it. And so he made the answer to that. And I mean, God bless him. It's a it's a great movie. 
And, but you, uh, but yeah, so, but I, I don't understand. You know, you know, I don't, and if, you, if you know Howard's pers- Hawks persona, it's like does he really want to? You have it out with Zimmerman. You know, it's like it's like uh, kind of strange. It's just a high noon's just a different flavor of a western. Very much. So. Uh, very not so, you know, not trying to make a. I don't. I never saw the statement it was trying to make. If if they 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 say it was. Well, you know, Wayne Wayne certainly was offended by it. And I don't know if Hawks and he were sitting around having drinks one night and, you know, talked themselves into it. I, I You know, I, I admire a lot of great Hawks movies, but I don't know that much about him. I do know about Wayne hmm. and, about Wayne, and Wayne's role in, you know, in Damning High Noon. And, and uh, he actually tried to get Carl Foreman to denounce, you know, High Noon and the party and all that. At the same time, Wayne had huge respect for Gary Cooper, of course, and so Wayne even agrees to go pick up the Oscar for Gary Cooper for Best Actor, <laughs> and I even pretends that, oh, I wish that my agents had given me this wonderful movie, this wonderful screenplay. And Carl Foreman's watching that moment, sitting in London where he's had to flee, basically, because of the blacklist, and says, well, Duke, you know how to reach me. I'm <laughs> <You know? laughs> happy to write your screenplay, you know. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. It's just, uh, I don't know. Well, I'm really looking forward to diving into it because uh, uh, this Midnight Cowboy book was just uh, a blessing. It was really, yeah. really, uh, uh, you did a great job. And I think uh, any true movie person should have this in their library. And uh, I'll be spreading the word for sure. For, on well, it. thanks, guys. Again, it's really fun talking to you. And, and I appreciate you doing this. I mean, you're, you know, you guys know about movies. You care about movies. So this means a lot. Uh, let's do it again on the next one. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Glenn Frankel, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, James. Thanks, Ted. Take care. Thank you.